If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Mark chapter 6. We began last week looking at the miracles of Jesus Christ, the Creator, over His creation and nature, a force of nature that is Jesus. And in Mark chapter 6, we're going to enter into a story that I know you are familiar with, as you are with most of the miracles of Jesus. But let me set the stage just a little bit for the passage that we're going to read. The feeding of the 5,000 is the backdrop to the text that we're going to study this morning. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, and I know that's a story that people know, something very interesting happens. According to John chapter 6, in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, the people who have eaten would take Jesus, the Bible says, by force and make him their king. They wanted in this moment Jesus to start a revolution and to become their leader. But of course, Jesus did not come to start a revolution, but rather to seek and to save that which was lost and to do the will of his Father, which ultimately is the cross. They look at Jesus and they see him as powerful. He is able to heal our diseases. He is able to do miraculous things. And he has just proven to them that he is also a permanent food supply. And so they have a desire to make Jesus their leader. Something very interesting happens in this moment. Because at the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, with a little bit of an uproar, wanting Jesus to be a revolutionary and to be the leader, perhaps, of the nation, we pick up in Mark 6, and we'll read this beginning in verse 45, and I'll direct your attention there. And straightway, that's one of Mark's favorite words. It's the word immediately in our minds. He constrained the disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he, that is Jesus, had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship with the disciples in it was in the midst of the sea, and he, that is Jesus, alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. The reason I can say that the feeding of the 5,000 is the backdrop to this story is because of Mark's conclusion there in verse 52. The disciples have a blind spot. They have not considered the feeding of the 5,000. It's out of their mind. Their hearts are hard. Let's pause for just a second and magnify the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 
If you combine all of the gospel accounts, it is utterly stunning how Jesus fed 5,000 people. For the disciples themselves in Luke chapter 9 and verse 12 determine they're not in the right place. Their assessment as they look around in that verse is, we are in a desert place. There's nowhere to go to get food. In the next verse in Luke's account, they assess, we don't have enough bread. We don't have enough food. They look and they say, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes. We weren't prepared for this, Jesus. We weren't expecting this. We don't have enough food. John tells us that they have assessed mathematically that they don't have enough money to feed everybody. They say in there, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may even take a little. We just don't have enough money. Matthew tells us they realize we don't have enough help. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Let them take care of it themselves. We don't have enough manpower to carry this out. And here in Mark chapter 6, back in verse 35, they look around and they assess That the time is far past. The day is coming to a conclusion. We don't have time. We're not in a good place. We don't have enough manpower. We're running out of time. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. There is no way that we can feed the people. In all of the gospel accounts of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, you can hear the negativity spilling out of the disciples. They're looking and they are assessing by merely human means to solve this problem. It is intriguing to me that not one of them verbalizes, I wonder if Jesus could do something miraculous. They've been with him. They've seen the same things that the people have gathered around Jesus to see more of. And not one of them assumes that this is a solvable problem. They don't even shed this further on into the passage as we've already established. John tells us that at the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus does something very interesting. It says in that verse, when they were filled, that means the people were stuffed. That's literally what it's communicated. He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Jesus is literally handing them an object to remember the lesson and the display of power that he has just done. And they're lost on it. Verse 52 very sadly says to us, They, that is the disciples, considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. What that means to us is they did not gain anything from the feeding of the 5,000. They did not connect any of the dots because they had their hearts hardened. Don't you find that hard to believe? They walk away from the feeding of the 5,000 and literally Jesus and his miracles have become so commonplace to them that they don't even consider it. They don't think about it. They've gained nothing. They're not connecting the dots that they're with creator God and he can do anything. Actually, what I find is they're just like us. They're just like you are, and they're just like me, and unfortunately, just like us, Jesus deems that they need another lesson, another stormy lesson, just like us. 
Jesus sends the disciples away. I referenced that as we began in verse 45. It's very, very, very vivid what the Bible says. And straightway, he constrained the disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. Now, we must understand what's happening. Again, set yourself in the context. Amazing miracle. 5,000 people are fed. The people are so excited, perhaps almost riotous, wanting to take Jesus by force and to make him their king. There is urgency in this story. So Mark uses the word immediately. Jesus gathers the disciples together and he constrains them to get into the ship. That word communicates to us urgency, pressure. The disciples did not have a choice. The verb being used indicates that this wasn't the will of the disciples to leave, but Jesus was putting them in the boat to go. Perhaps the disciples are verbalizing questions. Well, where are you going, Jesus? Well, what are we going to do with the people? What do we do with these baskets? We need answers, and Jesus is putting them into the boat. He's hurrying them away, and Jesus turns and sends the crowd away. We have to understand this as we move through this text. Jesus forced his disciples into the boat. It was his will, not theirs. And he encouraged them to go out onto the sea. And then verse 46 tells us what Jesus was doing. And when he had sent the crowd of people away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Why did he go there to pray? Now, I was not there I don't have a special word from God, but I can speculate based on what we read in Scripture about what Jesus was praying. We know that Jesus knew the heart's condition of those that were around him. Jesus knew that the hearts of the disciples were hardened. Even though he had literally taken a basket and put it in effect in their hands, they have not learned anything from this incredible miracle. He has just put them in the water, sent them out on the sea, sent the multitudes away, and now he is praying. Hebrews tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is ever interceding on our behalf. We know that Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you. We know that. We understand that in John chapter 17, what we might term as students of the Bible, the high priestly prayer, it's clear that Jesus Christ prays for us And so I think amongst other things that Jesus was praying for while he was alone, I believe he was praying for the disciples. Perhaps he was praying for them by name. He was praying for spiritual maturity. He was praying for strength. He was praying for boldness and bravery. He was praying for peace in their hearts. He was praying for their faith to be strengthened. And in verse 47, we kind of reset the whole scene. Because we read there, and when even was come, that sets the time. The ship was in the midst of the sea, that sets the disciples' location. And he, Jesus, was alone on the land, that sets where Jesus is. So the feeding of the 5,000 is the backdrop to this moment in time. It's now becoming dark. The disciples are in the midst of the sea, and Jesus is alone on the land. And the next phrase stuns me. And he saw the disciples. Jesus is about to come to where the disciples are. Now just think about that for a second. One of the things that I would have wondered if I was Peter, Andrew, James, or John, or any of the others that we don't know their names. Jesus, how are you going to get to the other side? 
Well, don't worry about me. I'll get there. Into the boat, the disciples go out onto the water. They go, if we want to really fill out this story, we've got to jump to Matthew's account because Matthew shares with us a little bit of an amplified view of this story. Here's what Matthew says about it. And straightway, again, urgency, get in the boat. Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship, go before him under the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, get this, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. This is a bit of new advice or or insight. Jesus is alone praying on the mountain, the disciples are in the midst of the sea, and the sea is now tossed with waves, and the wind is blowing against the disciples. I mean, Mark did tell us they were toiling in rowing. They were distressed in rowing. They were having to exert a lot of effort. They were fighting against the elements. About a five-hour trip is what it should have been. And about halfway across, a storm arises, which we know is sovereignly designed. A storm is raging. The disciples are rowing to the point of exhaustion. They're distressed. And in an instant, Jesus comes out to where they are walking on the water. They'd gone less than three miles. And Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, I want to call a quick timeout, a Bible study timeout, and point something out that I think is incredibly encouraging. In Verse 47, we read that Jesus was alone on the land, and verse 48 says to us, and he saw them toiling and rowing, and connects those two phrases. Jesus is alone on the land, and he sees the disciples physically exhausted in rowing against the wind with their boat tossed with waves. That is stunning, because we know there is a storm on the sea. And we know that the disciples are about three to four miles out in the sea, and yet the Bible tells us that Jesus saw them. How is that possible? Because Jesus is God, and Jesus omnisciently knows where the disciples are at that precise juncture in time. He can see through the storm, he can see over the waves, he can see through the circumstances. He is not bound as we are. I love what one author said, walking on the water is not the only miracle in this account. It's miraculous to realize that Jesus always sees his own. Deep in the dark night are the disciples, and Mark says he saw them. You see, the human tendency, what we tend to do when we are in storms in life, or our boat is tossed, or we are physically exhausted and pressing on, is we tend to imagine the face of God with blinded eyes. But this passage of Scripture destroys that as a reality, for the Bible says God sees them. In fact, followers of Christ in the storms of life are actually special objects of God's omniscience. He is a very present help in trouble. He is very aware of each of our situations. And so the Bible amplifies it yet again by painting the picture in verse 48 about the fourth watch of the night. He cometh unto them. I love that. I have no doubt that the disciples probably wanted Jesus in the boat at this moment in time. 
Though they had not considered the feeding of the 5,000, and though their hearts were hardened, perhaps they wanted Jesus in the boat with them. And if they had wanted to go where Jesus was, they couldn't have done it because they did not know where he disappeared when he walked back away from the shore. And if they tried to pivot the boat and work their way back, there was no way they were going to navigate this storm successfully. And so what a comfort it is to realize when the disciples could literally do nothing, Jesus saw them, and when they could do nothing to get to where he was, he came to where they were, walking upon the sea. He knew exactly where they were. He was very precise in his capacity to locate them. You say there's a strange phrase in there. It says he would have passed by them. Like hopping over into the fast lane on the highway and waving as he went by. I see you fellas. I'll be on the other side. I'm going to walk. The phrase he would have passed by them does not indicate to us that he intended to go right by them. It literally is communicating that he intentionally came right alongside of them. Again, it's very vivid in the language. Now, the disciples aren't the brightest bulbs. They're a lot like us. Verse 49 says, when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. Now, I'm not going to really pick on the disciples because this probably was a chilling sight. Imagine Jesus walking on the water. I can't really depict what it looks like, but I can imagine that perhaps the sea under his feet was literally placid and calmed with every step. I don't think that his hair or his robe was tussled by the wind. I imagine that he was completely dry. And as he walks out on the water, the Bible tells us the Greek word there is phantasma. They thought he was a phantom. They thought Jesus was a ghost. The faith of the disciples is always amazing to me. They have enough faith to think they're the first humans ever to see a ghost, but they can't imagine that it's actually Jesus come to help them. And the Bible tells us that when they see that phantasma, that phantom, that spirit or ghost walking out on the water, they cry out, and it is a very intense word. They shrieked in outright terror. It was not a man moment on the boat. I don't know, but Peter may have pulled the dagger out that he uses in the garden against Malchus and prepared to fight the ghost. We already know that James and John deemed themselves worthy of being at the right hand of Jesus when the kingdom was set up. So I'm sure they were pushing everybody else in front of them because they were the important disciples. Peter may have grabbed Andrew and said, take this brother. No one knows what he does anyways. And the disciple you found under the fig tree, did he even do anything in the New Testament? Get one of them. They shriek out. I also think it is interesting that at no point are they panicked by the storm. They are distressed in the storm. They're working against the storm, but they're not, we're not told anywhere they cry out or they are in fear of the storm. But when they see Jesus, they shriek in terror, thinking they have seen a ghost. Spurgeon said of this, yes, the disciples saw him. They saw Jesus, their Lord, and derived no comfort from the sight. They saw but knew not what they saw. What could it be but a phantom? How could a real man walk on these foaming billows? How could he stand in the teeth of such a hurricane? They were already at their wit's end, and the apparition put an end to their courage. 
He then says, lack of discernment blinds the soul to its richest consolations. Sometimes that which is intended to comfort because we do not have the discernment of the Holy Spirit actually enhances our panic. Jesus came in the darkest part of the night when they exhausted their energies. They were in deep despair and immediately he talked with them. I told you Mark's favorite word, straightway, immediately. Immediately Jesus talks with him. As the disciples shriek out in terror, it's a ghost. Jesus immediately responds to them and he says, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. I am so glad that Jesus speaks those words. The grace that drips from this story is overwhelming. He is praying for them, I believe. He sees where they are in the midst of their situation. He comes to their boat to save them. When they are afraid of his presence, he encourages them and exhorts them. And literally what Jesus is saying with that Greek word is, Hey guys, be brave. Buck up. Have some courage. Get a grip on yourselves. Can I tell you that as Christians... Perhaps some of the best advice we can get spiritually is buck up. Get a grip on yourself. Be brave. No one wants to hear that, do they? No one wants to hear somebody say, hey, uh, buck up. Buck up. Buck up makes you sound like you don't think my problem's a huge one. (laughs) If this was your problem, it'd be huge. You just tell me to buck up because it's not your problem. You're telling me to get a grip on myself? Do you think I'm nuts? Yes, I do. I mean, they're shrieking in panic, and Jesus literally says, Hey, don't be afraid. It's just me. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Have you looked around? Get a grip on ourselves. Be courageous. What are you talking about? Pause for just a minute and recognize what Jesus is saying. Don't be brave because you think you can navigate this storm. Don't be brave because you think you're good at rowing. Your source of courage and bravery is me and I'm here. Our source of courage and boldness in the moment is always Jesus, even in the midst of these deadly circumstances. Now we've been in Mark's account and something stands out. Mark doesn't tell us about Peter getting out of the boat to walk on the water. Have you ever wondered why? She asked pastor, no, never even noticed it. In fact, didn't know Peter walked on the water. Do tell. Okay. But I have thought about this. Peter walks on the water, or at least makes a valiant effort at it, and it's not in Mark's account. Why? It could be because John Mark, who is writing this gospel account, this, this account inspired by the Holy Spirit, is under the tutelage of Peter. He's being mentored by Peter. And Peter is no doubt sharing a lot of these stories, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring Mark as he writes them. And Peter that we know, Peter that we know who looked at Jesus and said, don't talk about the cross, and Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. And Peter who looked at Jesus and said, don't wash my feet. And Peter who took his knife out and cut off Malchus's ear. Peter's now an aged man, and Peter that lion has been humbled a little bit. And I don't think Peter didn't want it in here like, hey, don't tell the part about where I sunk in the water. Because it's Holy Spirit inspired. I think what Peter is trying to help John Mark do is let's keep the emphasis on Jesus in this story. But thankfully, Matthew tells all. Matthew lets us in. In Matthew 14 and verse 27, here's what we read. 
But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Peter is a fascinating guy to me. I mean that. His first reaction after flipping out that he thinks a ghost is on the water is to respond to Jesus and say, Okay, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come out to you on the water. What? How does that even get into his computer? I Honestly, I think the other disciples are like, what? I would have been there. Did you bring one of the baskets of leftover bread? Is there anything? Peter looks at Jesus and says, if it's really you then bid me to come out onto the water as well. And then Jesus does something that probably Peter wishes he hadn't done. Jesus just says, come in the next verse. All right, champ, let's do this. And Peter gets over the side of the boat. I think he's probably just scratching his head and thinking, well, if Jesus can do it, I can do it. As he gets out of the boat and walks on the water heading towards Jesus, I don't want to be too hard on Peter because he did get out of the boat. And by the way, he did do some steps on the water, which is more than I've ever done. But the Bible tells us in Matthew 14, 30, that when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And when he was afraid, he began to sink. It began to dawn on him, oh, I can't walk on water. What am I doing out here? I'm too far from the boat and I'm not yet to Jesus. He begins to go down. He becomes afraid. And I want you to just think of his words. He says three words. Highly intellectual words. Lord, save me. Help. I'm drowning. Now I have to pause here for just a second because I don't think any of us would pray that way. Our facades are too elaborate. Our fakeness, our need to spiritually flex on people is way too strong. We would never pray a prayer like, Lord, save me. That makes me sound like I need help. I love what one pastor humorously wrote. What kind of prayer is, Lord, save me? Who does Peter think he's serving? He said, I leaned back in my chair in my study and I let my imagination run. And he said, I created a prayer for the modern day Christian who is sinking in their circumstances. He said, here's how we as a church who have to spiritually flex and show how self-righteous we are would go to the Lord. We'd say, oh Lord, thank you for the many blessings of this day. I thank you that you are the creator and sustainer of all life. I believe that you created this sea, but I also believe my feet are getting wet. But you know all about that, Lord. In fact, I thank you for hearing my prayer even before I ask it. Lord, I think my waist is now wet. I want you to know, Lord, that I just apologize for coming to you today. I came yesterday and the day before and the day before that and the month before that. I can understand if you're a little upset, but Lord, the water's up to my neck. Now, I know if I get out of this, I deserve to tread water for at least an hour to do a little penance, but Lord, you know I'm not a good swimmer. (laughs) Your, Your infinite mercy, could you please reach down from the portals of heaven and take my hand and lift me up? Amen and amen. We have become so fake, we don't even know how to be sincere before the Lord. And I happen to believe 
One of the reasons we defeat the messaging of the church is because we're too insincere. That the insincere lives that we have led actually strip the gospel of its potency. And even in our moments of struggle, we act like God doesn't know who we are, and we act like if he could just find it within him, he has literally left where he was, knowing where the disciples were, walked out to them on the surface of the water, and Peter says, Lord, save me, and he does. It's incredible to realize that most of my private life with the Lord is a sham. He already knows. You say, well, yeah, but I've got to really clean up. I've got to be spiritually elite to get God's attention. There is no spiritually elite. God already knows the thoughts that have coursed through your brain in the midst of this sermon. He already knows everything. And that's not good, by the way. You say, how do you know? I'm looking at you. Some of you are looking at me with such hate. I can see it. That's a joke. There's only two of you. God knows everything about us. Earlier on, I referenced that the disciples just didn't get it. And so they needed another stormy lesson, and they got that. One of the most remarkable facets of this miracle of Jesus walking on the water is that strangely, they end up at their desired port, their desired haven, and nothing is made of it in the gospel. The telling of this miracle really is kind of a side note attached to the feeding of the 5,000. It's not like it's setting a long dialogue for Jesus' ability to walk on the water. We just take for granted that, of course, Jesus can walk on the water in Scripture. The reality is such that it's just embedded in this story, and it's clarifying, it's underlining something that Jesus had tried to teach the disciples earlier, and they just didn't get it. As far as we know, none of the multitude that was sent away knows that Jesus walked on the water. We have no account in Scripture that Jesus talked about this. In his next speaking engagement, uh, recently I was walking on the sea. We don't have any account of the disciples ever talking about this. So who is this for? This is not for the multitude of people who are still inquisitive about who Jesus is. This is for a boat full of disciples. This is for a boat full of Christ followers. This is for a boat full of people who know who Jesus is. They're on the team. They're signed up except for one. It's for the disciples. And Jesus is showing them something. I referenced earlier that when the 5,000 had eaten and were filled, they gathered up the fragments that remained so that nothing was lost. In John 6, 13, Jesus does something and John tells us about it. And certainly it is more meaningful than mere mathematics. John says this, Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Why 12? Any real deep Bible scholar want to throw out an idea? One for each of the disciples. You can't do this. Here's five reasons why this can't happen, God. And Jesus does it. And then to send the message home, he says, go gather up the fragments. You all didn't think we could feed these people. Go get the leftovers because everybody is stuffed. There's 12 baskets full of fragments. I can picture them standing there holding the baskets like a group of dunces, just like we would be. What do we do with them now? No, they're the point. Do we set them down? Mine's heavy. No, that's the point. Look down. Okay. Leftovers. Leftovers. 
You didn't think we could feed people leftovers. Do you not see what I'm trying to say to you disciples when you serve me and you give and you give and you give until you think you can give no more? I will take care of you. There will always be enough for you. I will always have more. I will always have enough out in the boat. Jesus doesn't give them 12 baskets of miracle leftover bread. He gives them the miracle of his presence when they thought there was no possible way he could be there. He was there. He's always there and he always sees. Interestingly, John makes no mention of the stilling of the storm as the others do. He simply says, then they willingly received him into the ship. That is the biggest, no, duh. You don't even say that anymore, right? Duh. That just means, that's so dumb, no one would contemplate. Of course they would. Are you going to look at Jesus like, eh, should wait for the next boat. This one's filled. They willingly received Jesus. And look at the next phrase. And immediately, the ship was at the land whither they went. That's stunning. Now, The Bible delivers it with no fanfare. It's so matter of fact. Once Jesus got in the boat, they're already at the port. Storm's over, trip's done, you're there. How can that be? Why is that? Because simply this, when Jesus gets into the boat and the lesson has been communicated, the storm ceases and you're already there. That's it. Jesus taught them. Disciples, I will always be enough for you. You will never be on your own. You can give and you can give and you can give until you have given out and I will still give you a basket full. There will always be enough. I am enough for you. It is stunning. I cannot help. The language is so vivid. You cannot help but see salvation in it. The disciples are toiling and rowing. They are exerting their efforts. Jesus comes to where they are because they cannot go to where Jesus is. And when Jesus gets in the boat, all the work is over. You're already at the destination. It's beautiful to comprehend. Even in the storms of life, where God is and where Jesus already is, our story has been completed and it's a beautiful story. Though to us it might seem laborious, it's already done where he is. When Jesus is in the boat, all work ceases. It's awesome to meditate on this story. I've shown you that in the dark and the storm, Jesus would say, I'll let nothing separate me from you. I'll walk on water to get to you. And when you take me into your boat with joy, we'll be at our desired haven. I don't just make the wind stop. I get in the boat and get you where I promised I would get you. Do you get it, disciples? Probably not. So there will be more storms, Jesus might say, and I'll be there in all of them. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.